readings found on page 811 of the Pew Bible, which you've probably got open because Drew just told you to. <laughs> As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. I don't know. So, um, again, Pastor Chris is with his family right now in Oregon. And they're enjoying the Shakespeare Festival up there that they do every year as a family vacation. So it's really my honor to come and bring the word to you guys today. And um, I was talking with John last service. Um, I, was, I was still waking up, I think, but the coffee's kicked in now. So we're going to have a good time digging into the scriptures together. But you got to keep those Bibles open because we're going to walk through verse by verse, phrase by phrase. So keep those Bibles open. It's page 811. And on your bulletins, you also probably got a couple post-it notes Hold on to those two. We're going to use those later. If you didn't get one, you lost it already. What the heck? But um, you can also use in the bulletin, there's a blank sheet that says sermon notes. You can take notes on that, or you can keep it for later when we're going to be doing the post-it note thing. Okay, but let's dig in to Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, Paul's writing to his readers, which are Gentiles. By extension, he's writing to us. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. It's interesting to me, he uses very clear wording here. He doesn't say we were hurt. He doesn't say we were sick. He doesn't say we were mortally wounded. Each of those phrases gives a little bit of hope that we can still do something. We're limping along. No, he says dead, finished, over. Let's put my first point up there. You can write these points if it helps you follow along. You were dead. He uses a very clear physical state to describe our spiritual state. Just the same way that a physically dead person can't interact with a living person, our spiritual death meant that we could not interact with God. We couldn't step towards him. We couldn't think about him. We, we, we couldn't even respond to him being there unless he first raised us to life. And Paul says he does that, but first he keeps going. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. It's kind of a weird death, Right? He says you're dead, we're dead to God, and yet we were alive to our sins and transgressions. We we're alive to our sin. We we're up walking around in our wickedness apart from God. The first thing I think of when I think of this is, is zombies, honestly. And if you don't know what zombies are, have you not watched a movie in the last decade? I mean, come on. Zombies, if you don't know, are people who have died but are nevertheless up and walking around. It's horror fiction and stuff like that. But the weird thing about zombies is it's not just that the life has left the body. The body is decaying, and the body is putrefying. It's a really disgusting thing, and that's what Paul is saying our human condition is before God. 
We are walking around decaying corpses in relation to God. He makes it so clear. And not only are we the walking dead, but we're also slaves to our death. He goes on, You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. He didn't say lead. He didn't say chose. He said followed. Now, I've talked about this before and you know, from here, but also just with people in conversations, the idea that we all worship something. We all submit to something. And if you don't think you do, maybe the thing you're submitting to is the idea that you're the most valuable, important person in the world and therefore deserve first priority in everything. That exalting of yourself is idolizing your ego. So even if that's a submission, we are slaves to that, Paul says. We followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of air. We'll come back to this idea of slavery, but moving on, verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Again, Paul makes it really clear, all of us. No one is out of this. No one is not included in this group. All of us also followed in this way. He says again in Romans chapter 3, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's a level playing field that we all start from. We are all completely depraved, all completely needing God's grace, and all completely not deserving it. Now, at this point, you might be like me and feel pretty down. Like, seriously, this is kind of a downer passage. And I'm sure that Paul's original readers probably felt that way too. I mean, he starts open the letter and says, Grace and peace to you. Hey, guys, remember this God that we worship? How big, how magnificent he is, the plan he has for us, the fact that he's redeemed us, he sent Jesus, and that same Jesus he sent who died and made the plan work and the Holy Spirit that's come to you now, he's ruling, and we get to follow him. And then he turns around and he punches you in the face and says, but you're dead. You're beyond hope. Not only are you unable to come to God, you're actually running in the opposite direction by following the ways of this world. He uses very graphic language. He says you're gratifying the cravings of our sinful flesh. It cannot get any worse than that, right? Not only are we as far away from God as we can get, but we're also slaves to everything that isn't him. What could be worse? But Paul adds on, and he keeps going. End of verse 3, he says, Like the rest, we were by nature, from birth, in our core, we were by nature objects of wrath. Now, there's a pastor and theologian, James Montgomery Boyce, that uh, wrote a commentary on Ephesians, and I want to read you an excerpt from that. So um, listen along as I read what what he says on wrath. I hear someone saying, wrath? Did you say wrath? If that's what you say, I can hardly believe you're serious. How can anyone talk about wrath of God today? I know the idea is in the Bible in obscure places, but surely it's something Christians today should be embarrassed about and try as hard as possible to repudiate. Speak of God's love. Speak of mercy, even justice, but not wrath. 
at least not if you want to be taken seriously by people living in our century. He goes on to say, I hear the objection, but it's an example of the very bondage about which Paul has been writing. The worldly mind does not take God's wrath seriously because it does not take sin seriously. Yet, if sin is as bad as the Bible declares it to be, nothing is more just or more reasonable than the fact that the wrath of a holy God should rise against it. God's wrath flows from his holiness. It is the outworking of his holiness against all that's opposed to it. This is why our condition is so frightful. Paul describes us as being dead in our transgressions and sins. This is bad, of course, but it would not be frightful apart from God's wrath against those transgressions. Apart from wrath, we might simply conclude that this is just the way things are. God is God. We are people. He is holy. We are not holy. Let God go his way and we'll take ours. But it doesn't work that way. God does not simply take his own path. This is his universe. He is the holy God and our sin has introduced a foul blemish into it. He is opposed to sin and is determined to stamp it out. This is the God of the Bible and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God about whom Paul is writing. This God is what we need, though we do not know it in our sinful state. Instead of coming to him to find new life and righteousness, we run from him to wickedness and spiritual death. So what are we going to do, church? As sinners, we're slaves to sin. We're unable to escape it. And obviously, we're rushing along to the inevitable outpouring of the just wrath of a holy God. Now, humanly speaking, there's nothing we can do. A sinner can't save himself. Even a redeemed person that's seen the truth of the gospel can't turn around and save another sinner. It's humanly hopeless. But... What's impossible for you and me, what's impossible for man, is possible for God. You can hear Paul barely able to contain his excitement when he like doesn't even finish describing our depraved state and just bursts in saying, For, but God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive in Christ, even though we are dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. As we're moving along, this is verse 4. I want to take a quick break. Something I learned, or rather relearned this week, doing research for this, um, was what translators do when they're translating from the original Hebrew, or in this case, the Greek. Now, translators, they take the original Greek, and they're translating in any language, or say English. They usually rearrange some phrases sometimes. Not change meanings of words, just rearrange phrases. And this is commonplace, and this is good to do, because English syntax is different than Greek syntax. And so the rearrangements actually present better for the English mind what the Greek is trying to get at. And so the phrase in verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive in Christ even though we are dead in transgressions. In the original Greek, that whole phrase starts with, but God. Now the theologian Martin Lloyd-Jones says that these two words in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole gospel. 
and that might seem confusing. John Stott puts it like this. We were objects of wrath, but God, out of the great love with which he loved us, had mercy on us. We were dead, and dead men do not rise, but God made us alive with Christ. We were slaves in a situation of dishonor and powerlessness, but God has raised us with Christ and set us at his own right hand in a position of honor and power. Thus, God has taken action to reverse our condition in sin. As you hear what he said, he didn't just restore us to life from death. He took us from death, restored us to life, and then raised us. What does verse 6 say? And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God took our sinful, broken selves, he washed us clean, he put us back together, and then brought us even higher, made us even better than we ever were before. He made us co-heirs with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. He seated us at the right hand of God. Now John Sott says that it's a power, it's a place of, of authority and power and honor, and that's true, but it's also, if you think about it, a place of intimacy and trust. We were as far away from God as we could possibly be, and then he brought us right to where we were. Some of the stories in the Bible and in the Gospels of what Jesus did that are only in certain Gospels are because those disciples happened to be the ones that were right next to Jesus when he's telling that story. They got the intimacy of that story. God brought us right next to him, seated us in heaven where we can hear his voice. We can learn from him at his side, act alongside him. Let's keep going. Verse 8, this is the one that everyone knows. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Can we just take a second? This next point, by grace alone. Do you see how crazy this is? This was not done because we deserved it or earned it or anything like that. It was done as a gift, Paul says. And this is a gift that only God could give because his love and his mercy and his forgiveness and his redemption and his kindness are incomparable. There's nothing we can even like hold up next to it to see what it's like. I was reading this passage this week and, and a, an image came to me. I want to share it with you as a way that I kind of explain this in my own head of what our God do, does, what lengths he goes to to explain his love for us. Our God's a father. He's our father. And he says that his love is never-ending and it's relentless in its pursuit of us. And we don't get that. So here's what he does. He goes out and he finds the most vile, dirtiest, disgusting, never-going-to-change murdering thief covered in sick and scabs and wearing damp, moldy rags for clothes. And he brings them home. And he cleans off his body and he bandages his sores. And he puts brand new silk pajamas on him. And he seats him at the table right next to his own children. And he prepares a feast from the best food available. He calls them family. After dinner, 
He reads him a bedtime story. He tucks him in. He tells him that he loves him. Because he can. He's the only one who can. Because he doesn't just love more than anyone else we know. Because he is love. He dismantles our perceptions of right and wrong and justice and earning and what we deserve and picks us up in his arms and says, shh, it's okay. I love you. I am love and I love you. You don't ever have to worry about that changing. You don't ever have to worry about me loving you less than anyone else. I can never even split love between my children. I am love. And I love you. And I know you don't understand. I know you don't know why or how. But you don't need to. All you need to know is that I've done it for you. It's done. For it's by grace you've been saved. Through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Verse 9. Not by works so that no one can boast. James Boyce, later on in his commentary on Ephesians, he says it this way. There is nothing that we can do to get ourselves into salvation. If we think there is, we're still trusting ourselves and our own ability rather than Christ, and we cannot be saved. Salvation is by grace alone, and all we can do, but also must do, is take what God puts in our hand and thank him, because it's a lot better than anything we've ever had before. To recap, we were dead. We were dead, unable to do anything about it, unable to go even a step closer to God. But God, because he loves us and because he's merciful, brought us from where we were to where he is. Not by our works or anything we did, but by grace alone. For what? Why would he do that? Paul tells us in verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now you're like, what the heck, Drew? You just told me my works have nothing to do with it, and now you're saying I'm supposed to do something about it? And you're probably right, because Paul says, it's by grace you've been saved, through faith. We believe as a church that we are justified. That means the slate has been wiped clean through faith only, not the stuff we do. But a theologian, John Gerstner, once said that we are not justified by a faith that is alone. Let's go to scripture to dissect this. In, in James, in his letter to Jewish believers, he puts it this way. This is chapter 2, starting at verse 12. Nope. Chapter 3. James 2, starting at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, I know this sounds confusing, maybe even contradictory. It's not the stuff we do that saves us, but once we're saved, we've got to do something. What the heck does that mean? 
But the problem disappears when we realize that the good works that we as Christians are called to do are themselves the result of God's prior working in us. That's why Paul prefaces his demand for the good works by saying, for we are God's workmanship. All right, follow with me here. The very next book after Ephesians is Philippians. It's like two pages later. Chapter 2, starting at verse 12, Paul's speaking to other Christians on this idea, and he says, Therefore, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And verse 13 says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. It seems to point back to something that Jack was talking about last week. And he used some big words, and one of the big words is sanctification. And it's the idea of being made holy or being holy. And Jack introduced us to some big doctrinal ideas of sanctification, the difference between positional sanctification and progressive sanctification. Now, positional sanctification, as the church understands it, is the idea that the salvation that we got through Jesus by his sacrifice for us has, past tense, set us apart as children of God. We are set apart. Progressive sanctification is the understanding that while that's true, at the same time that that has happened, we are also, the, the work of the Holy Spirit in us is continually setting us apart from sin and making us more holy, making us more like God. And I think that, that's what Paul is getting at here. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Notice, however, that it's God who's doing the working. Back to Ephesians, our passage, Ephesians 2, 10. This is what God has done. Put the next point up there. He has recreated us. It says that this work of God is a new creation. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Paul is differentiating our new creation in Christ from our old creation in line with Adam. And if you think about it, the beginning, when God created man, he created Adam, he made him able to do all good works that God wanted. He made him complete. He made him able to take stewardship of the earth. That's what God created man for, to rule over it, to rule over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. That's what he did. He was good. He wasn't incomplete. He didn't need salvation. He was good. Well, then we know Adam fell, messed it up for the rest of us. And after that, any good works that Adam did and any good works that we in Adam's line try to do are at best bad. They're tainted. The sin that entered through, through Adam has tainted everything. Adam poisoned the water hole, and now we're there being sick. We can't help but not be able to live in the way that Jesus made us. But now, God recreates us as we're joined to Jesus. Our God, who created everything that we see and know, brings now into existence something that did not exist before. And it has new and exciting possibilities. What before couldn't help but sin, now has the ability to stop sinning through Jesus Christ. And now is able to do good works. We are now able to live as we were meant to. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, in chapter 10, he 
he's using parables to describe what he has come to do. And he says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they, he's speaking about his sheep, us, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. God has redeemed us from death by grace and recreated us to live. And that's the last point with verse 10. We, Jesus showed up to show us how to live. He showed us to follow in his footsteps, follow his model, and live as we were meant to, to live as sons and daughters of our Father. And that is not segmented. That is not like some good life here and some bad life here. That's fully integrated. It's following after Jesus' life, fully connected to his Father, to our Father, through, through prayer and worship and actually being able to communicate with him, not feeling like he's distanced. That is fully invested in and pouring into the body of Christ that God has raised up around us. That is fully stepping out into the broken world that we live in to bring that message of hope that we cling to. It is fully integrated. That's why Jesus came. So that we could actually live the way God wanted us. The way he created us to. But the truth is, we don't always feel like we're living, do we? Or perhaps maybe the life that you're living or the life that you see around you isn't exactly like the life that you think Jesus had in mind. But you know what? We've gotten used to it. It's good sometimes, but the rest is kind of bleh. But it's life. It's the world. It's hard for us to get excited about full life that Jesus talks about because we don't see it. The world's broken. It's not all full like Jesus said. We don't hear from God. We don't want to step out. I don't see it anywhere. I can't get excited about that. And I feel that way sometimes too. This is me being completely honest. I can get really excited about a passage here, but what does this actually mean in my life? If I really believe that Jesus came and gave his life to redeem me, how does that change me? I don't know. What does it actually look like? My thought is this. Maybe it's hard for us to see the full life that God wants for us because maybe we're still holding on to death. Maybe I'm still holding on to death. Not completely. I've accepted God's gift of grace, but it's not the only thing in my hand. I know that God's gift is the best thing I could possibly have in my hand, and yet I'm also believing the lie that Satan has told me that I can still hold on to that little piece of death. It's not that bad. What about you? Are you still holding on to death in some areas of your life? Maybe you're like me. The outward sins of the flesh, these things that people can see and you know are bad. I'm staying away from that stuff, but maybe you're like me and you've justified some of the inner intellectual death, like pride or envy. Maybe you can relate with the single parent that has believed the lie that Satan tells them that they are on their own. 
They have to go it alone, and they have to do it on their own power. And they better step up. Maybe you can relate with the grandparent that has mistaken their retirement from their career, which they worked hard for and they earned. But they've mistaken that retirement from their career with retirement from God's work in them and through them. They think that they're done. Now they're just coasting. They have nothing left to offer. There's Those are lies. That's death. It is mud, and it is mucky, and it's dirtying up the holy hands that God has given us. It's keeping us back from the life that God has prepared in advance for us to live. This is the point when you need your post-it notes. If you don't have a post-it note, tear out a blank page in a Bible or something. Or use the blank sermon page. Something to write on. Because we can intellectually think about this, but we can also do something and and it engages more of our minds. So take out the post-it note and a pen. And I'll wait. Those of you sitting out there with your arms crossed, I don't want to do this homework thing. What am I in school? Yeah. It's It's an exercise. This is something that I've done with different groups or different things and been a part of. And it's called Take Away and Leave Behind. And it's simple. On one post-it note or one section of the paper, I want you to take a minute right now and think or pray and ask Jesus, what is some death that you're still holding on to that Jesus is telling you to leave behind today? What is some area of your life that you know is just, it's old, it's death? the old way, that Jesus is saying, you need to leave this behind today. Take a second. Think about it. If you want to write it down, but you don't want anyone to read it, crumple it up. On the other post-it note, I want you to think about, pray about, what is some aspect of Jesus' life for you that he is telling you to take away with you today? What's some aspect of life that you have not yet stepped into that maybe you need to bring you lunch with your family today? Maybe it's an aspect of life that you need to take home to your family tonight and you need to step into it in the way that you parent your family. Maybe it's some aspect of life that Jesus is telling you to take to work tomorrow and step into in your job. What is that? Take a second. Think about it. Before Jesus came, we didn't have a chance. If God had never come up with his plan of how to save us, we would have been slaves of sin forever. But God did come. And he did extend his grace to us. And he created us to be new. To live as we were intended to live. To live as we were created to live. So as the service continues, Heidi's going to play a 
special music, and the usher's gonna come forward. Maybe you wanna get rid of that death, you can put it in the plate and get rid of it, or you can hold on to it. Maybe during communion time, you can come up and get prayer to release that. Maybe you can find someone sitting next to you if you don't wanna come up here and pray with them and release that. Crumple it up, leave it here, I'll throw it away. Or take it home with you and think about it. That life, that postal note that you wrote, the life you're supposed to step into, Put it somewhere you're going to see it. Maybe in your wallet. Every time you open it, you're going to see that. Remember that this next week. Maybe on top of your bulletin if you keep that. Maybe in your Bible. But what is some death that Jesus is telling you, let go of so that you can step into my life? Can you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for your words. God, I so desperately want to live life like you lived it. But I really need your help to let go of this death. God, don't let, ev- don't let me ever forget the words that you say to me when you say you love me, even when I have this death, and give me the courage to let go of it. Give me the eyes to see what it is I need to get rid of, what it is that you are telling me to just give to you and leave behind. And help me step into what you've given me. Help me step into the life that you've prepared for me to live. Help us step into it as a community. Help us step into your love.